Good morning. Good morning to everyone in the room, everyone on Zoom. I'm just uh, going to sort out my props. I've got a few props for later on that I might use. If I don't, it's just table decoration, isn't it? So let's just pray. God, thank you that you have glorified your name and you will glorify it again. I pray that um, these words I've prepared would glorify you. Amen. Amen. A few years ago now, when my wife uh, Kate and I were on honeymoon, we had the opportunity to go scuba diving. Hadn't ever scuba dived before. And I was particularly excited about this because I heard I wouldn't have to wear a wetsuit. And I've only put a wetsuit on a couple times in my life, but it's one of the more stressful experiences I've been through. And you can just, you, whatever image comes to mind there, you just treasure that. That'll, uh, you can just keep that with you throughout the day. Um, but we were told we could go scuba diving. And, um, but part of this meant what we had to do, basically, before we could go, was do a little bit of a safety briefing, learn a bit about the equipment, the different things we were going to be using. I think we had to watch a couple of safety videos. And then we would go on a test dive. And only if we then got through the test dive could we go out on a proper guided scuba dive. And so we went through the motions of learning about the gear and the masks and the tank and the different weights we'd be wearing and learning about the different procedures involved in case different things happen underwater. And then it came the moment for the test dive. And all the equipment was put uh, upon us. And then what happened next really, really surprised me. Because as I was submerged underneath the water, it suddenly dawned on me that I would have to breathe in. And it's fair to say that was a weird experience because we're hardwired, aren't we, from an early age, for good reason, to not breathe underneath water. Unless, of course, you're Aquaman, but his mum was Queen Atlanta of Atlantis, and there was, anyway, so I'll get into that. But we're, as human beings, as non-Aquaman human beings, not living in the DC comic world, we're told that breathing in underwater is not a good thing. And so I was really shocked, like, even though I thought I had nailed the safety briefing, I'd understood everything that they had told me about the equipment. There came a moment which ultimately was about trust. I had to breathe in. I had to take my first breath, trusting that the equipment was going to come through. And I will say this now. Not everyone's able to do that. Not everyone is able to go out on the dive. And I have sympathy for that because they can't get over the weirdness of that moment. But if, if you're able to trust, if you're able to take that first breath in, a whole new world opens up for you. A world full of colour and life and beauty as you go out on the scuba dive. It was indeed fun. Understanding can only get us so far, can't it? Understanding can only get us so far. At some point or another, we need to learn to trust. And we've been in a series today. It's what we've been talking about already in the prayers. But we've been in a series over the past few weeks called Hope in the Darkness. Looking at what it means to follow Jesus in the way of the cross as we journey through Lent together as a community. And as we come to our passage today in John 12, I want to suggest another reason that we can find hope in the darkness. Because times of darkness, times where life doesn't feel clear often are the best times for us to surrender our understanding. They give us the opportunity to to surrender understanding and instead trust in God. It's easy, but it's not simple. 
And we understand, and we're going to look at this today, but we understand that the most fundamental posture of discipleship isn't understanding. It's never been understanding. The most fundamental posture of discipleship is trust. That's always been what God's people are drawn into. The whole of the wisdom literature summed up in Proverbs. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. So in our passage today, we see two groups of people who have reached the limit of their understanding about Jesus. And all that's left for Jesus to do is give them a kind of peculiar image of a seed falling to the ground and dying. So let's get into the passage. It's worth saying that by the time we get to John 12, Jesus at this point has become a celebrity. The whole world is at Jesus' doorstep. We've had the triumphal entry where Jesus is welcomed in to Jerusalem as a king. We've just a chapter before um, seen Lazarus raised from the dead. And we hear that even the crowds who were around who, who witnessed that were, were spreading out all around Jerusalem, telling as many people as they could. We've seen um, uh, huge swathes of crowds. I mean, I was trying to imagine this the other day, like a, like a post-lockdown street party down the Mansfield Road. Times like 100, right? You imagine the electric atmosphere. This is what's happening. Jesus is becoming a celebrity teacher, a celebrity rabbi. Even the Pharisees, just a few verses before, tell us that the whole world has gone after him. The whole world has gone after him. And in the middle of all of this, In the middle of this context, we see in verse 20 that some Greeks come and ask to see Jesus. You know, the first thing to say is that when we read the word, some Greek, when we read that phrase, some Greeks here, we're supposed to understand that as more than just a a collection of individuals. Greeks in, in John's gospel are supposed to represent to us the outsiders, the foreigners. Even the rest of the non-Jewish world. It's the outsiders that are coming to Jesus now. It's the, it's the people outside of the Jewish community that are having a hunger stirred within them and are asking Philip, help us to see Jesus. Let us see Jesus. You know, we, we hear that they've come to the festival. Maybe they're attracted by some of the Jewish rituals. Maybe some of the stories that they've heard from this people. But probably they're excited to receive another bit of wisdom from the latest teacher, from the latest hyped celebrity teacher. But what's fascinating about this, what's fascinating is that Jesus doesn't respond to their request, does he? The Greeks come and ask Philip to see Jesus. Philip has a confab with Andrew. They then ask Jesus together, and then Jesus starts talking about seeds and dirt. A bit rude. Why has he done that? Imagine the reaction of these Greeks who have come to Jerusalem. Like it's, it's likely that these individuals would have been schooled in the latest philosophy. They would have had all, all of the most current um, intellectual ideas from where they were from. These are the people, right, who read all of the deep books, who listened to the podcast before you did, who listened to all the cool bands, but only the earlier albums that you've never heard of. These people were like in vogue. They were the hipsters of the first century. They had all of the most current ideas. And Jesus, instead of coming over to them and waxing lyrical like one of the philosophers they're used to, instead tells them a thing about agriculture. Agriculture. We've got Aristotle and you're giving us agriculture. We came for Hollywood and you're giving us horticulture. Had to make sure that was about gardening. Thank you very much. What is going on? 
Why is Jesus just going off on one, talking about kernels of wheat and death? When I was in primary school, I had a teacher, one of my very favourite teachers, called Mrs. Johnson. And um, every now and then, um, it happened more regularly than I'm willing to admit, but every now and then I'd struggle with the spelling in class and I'd put my hand up and um, I would say to Mrs. Johnson, Mrs. Johnson, can you, can you spell this word the right way for me? And Mrs. Johnson would sweetly smile at me and she'd get her red pen that only teachers seem to have and she'd come over to my exercise book and she'd write the letters D-I-C-T-I-O-N-A-R-Y. At the time, it infuriated me. But looking back, what a baller move. See, what Mrs. Johnson had done is that she, she had refused my request to answer a bigger question. She had refused my request um, to give an answer bigger than the thing I wanted. I mean, ultimately, she was trying to help me to learn, right? I had to go over to the dictionary, and I had to, had to engage in something bigger, which was to learn words for myself and to learn how to use this thing. And in the same way, Jesus is kind of doing the same thing. He's, he's, he's responding, he's, he's giving an answer that's bigger than the request of the Greeks. The Greeks are asking to see Jesus, right? And he starts giving this metaphor, but, the, but what they don't realise at this point is that in this metaphor, Jesus is opening up a whole new world. He's giving them the answer that they really seek, which is about this. Who is included in the kingdom? Who's going to be included in the kingdom of God? Jesus knows that at this point that the understanding isn't going to get people there. He now has to turn in his mission and walk towards the cross. Only his death for the sins of the world, only his saving death and his resurrection is going to, is going to ultimately mark this moment of liberation. That all people, not just the Jews, but every single human that was living, every human being that will ever live is welcomed in to the kingdom. Jesus makes a way for each one of us. That's true for us today. There is no reluctance, by the way, on Jesus' side when it comes to your life. There's no reluctance on his part. He's longing to meet with you. He's reaching out to know you. He's done everything necessary to come into your life. He's done everything necessary to give you life. The reluctance so often is on our part. And this moment is so significant that it marks like a gear change in the Gospel of John. Now we see, we see I mean, before Jesus even tells this story, right, he says, the hour has now come for me to be glorified. You know, we've heard all the way through the gospel of Jesus saying, my time has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. And suddenly some Greeks turn up and his hour has come. The moment that we've all been waiting for is here. Jesus now has to walk towards the cross because cognition, rationality won't get us any further. He has to do what only he can do and call us into the same. So we have the Greeks. And then there's Philip, the disciple whom these Greeks approach. Philip, who, and this is interesting, who right at the beginning of the story, after Jesus asks, him, uh, asks, asks Philip to follow him, goes to Nathanael and says to Nathanael, come and see. And now he stood in Jerusalem, and people are now asking to come and see Jesus. You know, the disciples were no, it was, it was like the kingdom had shifted a gear. Rather than the disciples just telling other people about Jesus, people were coming and asking for themselves. And we hear about that, like, like outsiders coming and asking about Jesus. And in our context, we're like, that should be exciting, right? God stirring a hunger in the city. God moving amongst the non-Christians. God is stirring a hunger. They're flooding into church. They're all coming on Alpha. Hallelujah. And yet Philip doesn't take the news to Jesus. Instead, he goes over to his mate and has a little confab, doesn't he? Chats to Andrew. Why does he do that? 
Well, look, I'm just going to caveat this, this next point. We don't know. <laughs> we're, not give, we're not given the information in the Scripture. This is what, we, what, what the scholars call an argument from silence. But we can make a couple of assumptions, perhaps. Why does Philip not go straight to Jesus? Why does he decide to, to go to Andrew? Well, the first one's this. As we said, Jesus has become a bit of a celebrity figure, hasn't he? The hype is all around Jerusalem. Everyone had, you know, had welcomed him in. He, the news about him was spreading all over the place. And maybe they were doing that kind of thing that people do. Like if a mate of yours becomes famous, they sort of become a sort of pseudo bodyguard unit, right? And they're trying to restrict access. You know, imagine the Jews coming up, you know, we would like to see Jesus. And they go, suck through the teeth. You want to see Jesus? I might have to talk to my colleague about that. Jesus is slammed today. His schedule is really full up. But, you know, I'll have a chat and see, see if we can make something work. Maybe they were trying to restrict access to Jesus. But I think perhaps the more likely reason for this is that Philip is genuinely confused. You know, we already hear a few verses earlier that the disciples didn't really understand what the triumphal entry was all about. We have this, this, this close-knit community that Jesus has formed, and suddenly he's setting the whole world on fire. And as if that wasn't enough, there are now foreigners, the rest of the world, these people representing, now also coming to Jesus. Like, what would this mean for them? What does this mean for their position? Like, we know the disciples have already been concerned about this. They've already had arguments about who's going to be the greatest amongst them, let alone the whole world. Jesus is going global. What does that mean for them? What's their job title going to be? Are they going to have the corner office? It raises all kinds of questions. Perhaps it raises questions about their position, the threat of the inclusion of others. Do you ever feel that? Threatened by the idea that God's picture of the kingdom is so much bigger than ours. That the person that makes you most uncomfortable in the city, Jesus calling by name. The people that don't smell right the people that you kind of look away from on the street. Jesus is calling home. Both groups of people, the foreigners, the Greeks who had come for wisdom, who had come for more teaching, and even the disciples who had been with Jesus, both groups had reached the limit of their understanding. And it's like Jesus in this moment just says, look, like there's, I have to go to the cross now. The only way for you to, the only, the only way for you to be able to see what this kingdom is really about is for me to enact, enact the final part of the mission, to die. Unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Jesus knows that the only way forward is the cross. Only through his death and resurrection will people be able to see what the kingdom of God is really about. Even in all of Jesus' teaching, like we, we know this, don't we? With, we see later on in the scriptures, the disciples, even after Jesus' resurrection, still don't really get it. Jesus, at what time are you going uh, to restore the kingdom to Israel? Like Jesus knows that there is, there, is a, there is a block, there is a cap on their understanding that can only be overcome by the resurrection. So Jesus is the seed. He's referring to himself, isn't he, to state the blindingly obvious. He is the seed now that will have to go into the darkness of the ground and die and die so that you and I can have life, so that you and I can be welcomed into this kingdom. But the truth is, we are also the seed. Jesus isn't just talking about himself here. As Johnny said a few weeks ago, Jesus doesn't go to the cross so that we wouldn't have to. He goes to the cross so that we would know how to. He walks in the way of the cross. We are also called to surrender. I'm going to use my props now. Some of you have been like, finally. 
Here are some pumpkin seeds, folks. We are also the seed. And this is the bit that's really difficult for us because conceptually probably we're mostly okay with the idea of Jesus dying for our sins, of him going to the cross. But then when Jesus' words turn to us, unless you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains alone. Whoever loses their life, loses their life for my sake, will find it, becomes a little bit more close to the bone. You know, we, 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 we take this seed, our lives, and perhaps we think that really the thing we need to do is just sort of endlessly understand it. You know, we try, we try and answer all of our questions. We try and rationalize all of our fears. We try and read all of the right books. We get educated, and there's nothing wrong with that, but we sort of feel, even after that, we kind of look at the seed, and we can't, we can't help but feel like the seed was made for more than that, can we? We can't help but feel there's probably more potential there. There's probably something more there. You know, just, just by understanding our lives, just by understanding the seed, it doesn't produce a plant, does it? You can know everything you want about this pumpkin seed, but until you put it in the ground, it won't produce anything. Or perhaps the way we approach life is we think, well, you know, our, lives, our seed's a bit better than other people's seed, isn't it? Ours is a bit prettier or a bit bigger. Ours is a nicer colour. Like, like, comparatively, my life's pretty good. But do you see that both of these are still just forms of control? We're still just keeping the seed to ourselves. The seed never is able to grow into what it's supposed to be. And Jesus, in this moment, calls us to this. Surrender. Unless a grain of wheat, unless a seed falls to the ground and dies, it can bear no fruit. The only way to live the lives that we were made to live, the only way to become the people we were designed to be, the only way to fulfill the purpose for my life and your life that God has destined for us is to surrender. That's why we talk about it so much. But that's the point, by the way, is that it's death in order for life to happen. It's surrender in order for possibility. It's crucifixion in order that resurrection may happen. You know, it's not death for the sake of death. It's not Christians just just self-flagellating and just getting angry at themselves and, and feeling pain for the sake of pain. It's not that. It's death for the sake of life. It's death for the sake of newness. Like the scuba diver, we breathe in and a whole new world is opened up before us. You know, it's, it's so, I have so much sympathy for how, um, how tightly we hold to understanding. You know, in our society in particular, we're told that, that maturity is about understanding. You know, trust is sort of that thing we do when we're a kid, and then we go to school, and we learn, and we, we grow in our understanding, and then you might go to university or whatever, blah, 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 blah. And maturity looks like understanding. It looks like standing on your own two feet. And Jesus says, no, it's not about that. It's not about that. You're not more mature because of your understanding. The wisdom of God is the wisdom of trust. The wisdom of God is death. The wisdom of God is surrender. You know, and I just, I just wonder if there's people who are watching online today on Zoom or even in the room, and it's, and it's just like you, you've, you're trying to wrap your head around what God's doing, and instead God's calling you to trust. You know, perhaps you're waiting for like every answer you have about Jesus to be answered before you go and follow him. But Jesus says the, door, the doorway is trust. You know, Anselm puts it like this, you know, I believe in order to understand. 
Or maybe you're like me. I, I, I look at the disciples. I look, like, look at Philip and Andrew. And, and the, the conviction for me, honestly, is that my, my vision of the kingdom is too small. My vision outside of, of Jesus' death, outside of the resurrection, is just always going to be too small. I need to surrender even my dreams of the kingdom to him. Even the things I want him to do the most, I have to put back into his hands and let him fill me up. You know, that's why we celebrate kids so much here, because kids get this. They're getting it right now. It's amazing. They're in the room. Kids get this. They, they, they understand trust, don't they? They understand the instinct of just trusting their parent, trusting their father, and we're called into the same. Would you like to stand? I'm going to invite the band back up, and I'm going to pray for us. You may want to hold your hands open in front of you, as we always do. And this is a sign. I feel in particular in this moment, this is a sign of surrender, of opening our lives up to God, of trust. Lord, I pray for every single one of us watching online on Zoom, every single one of us in the room. Give us the courage to trust you. Teach us to put our lives in your hands. God, I pray, even in this moment, I pray would you bring fresh hope the hope that comes after death, the resurrection after the crucifixion. Thank you, Father, you love us. You're longing to bring us life. You're longing to bring us life. And I even feel for some in this moment, it's almost like um, you're still just holding really tightly. There's just a, there's, there's a, it's almost your understanding, trying to wrap your head around things. Maybe like the Greeks, you're still sort of trying to figure out why God hasn't answered your request. But he's saying, I've got something so much bigger. And in that moment, it's almost like, you know, if you're doing that, maybe even physically, you just want to clench up your fists and then open them out. Say, God, I give you, I give you my unanswered questions. I give you my confusion. And I choose now to surrender to you. I choose to trust in you. Believing that you're a good father that wants to lead me. Holy Spirit, would you come? Would you speak for yourself, God? Speak to people today.
leave for some, even this, um, this life of fullness that Jesus offers us is, is even just, even at this moment, it's like you just, you can't even begin to imagine that. You find it hard to even grasp that. Like life is so difficult right now that even seeing, even seeing hope, um, the smallest bit of hope in your life is difficult, let alone this expansive life. And I just believe that God wants to give you a vision now and I believe it starts with um, you just having a sense of his presence, with him, him just drawing close to you. I pray would you do that. I just particularly see um, a couple in a, just watching this in their lounge. And I just, I just feel like God wants to just uh, fill your space now with his presence. Let me encourage you, just continue to invite the Holy Spirit. Ask God to speak to you. Ask God, just just say even to the Holy Spirit, just show me Jesus, show me Jesus. Let's worship together as we do that.